You are tuned in to the State of Cannabis News Hour, where industry leaders, regulators, and lovers of cannabis gather collectively to move policy forward in an inclusive and sustainable way. Professionals and Canacurious alike can tune in to hear leading cannabis experts share and discuss headlines, critical industry issues, social topics, and more. The State of Cannabis News Hour, your daily dose. Hi, and welcome to the State of Cannabis News Hour, where we bring you all the top stories you need to know and talk about them for four minutes and 20 seconds. We are a group of experts in different cannabis spaces with a wide diversity of perspectives and life experiences. Our news is bite-sized and infused with a nice mix of facts, opinions, and a pinch of humor. It's Thursday, February 24th, 2022. This is episode number 223. I'm Susan Sores, the founder of the State of Cannabis News Hour, author of the children's book, What's Growing in Grandma's Garden, and Cannabis's Favorite Grandma, aka Nanogram. If you're listening to the podcast or watching on the YouTube channel, the show is live every weekday at 9 a.m. Pacific Standard Time on Clubhouse. Spark it up with us and over 26,000 State of Cannabis News Hour members if you want to be an audience participant. That's one of the unique things about this show. Not only do we have a panel of expert correspondents, often we have someone in our audience that is intimately involved in the story. Otherwise, please subscribe to support our show. We'd love to hear from you, so please leave us a review. Today, we're talking about college students that consume cannabis are more motivated, what cannabis trade shows look like in the future, New Jersey cannabis sales starting soon, New York hemp farmers can grow cannabis under provisional licenses, cannabis in Canada's GDP, and many other frosty nuggets. So stay tuned for the full 60 minutes of the State of Cannabis News Hour. The following program contains coarse language and nudity. Viewer discretion is advised. Audience, feel free to raise your hands if you want to weigh in on a headline after it's been read, and we'll try to bring you up to the stage. Keep it brief and relevant, or you might get the gong. Kicking off the show today is Nicole West. She is a cannabis business specialist, part-time firefighter and cat herder, and director of operations at LB Atlantis. Nicole is a veteran in the cannabis industry and is always ready to use her experience to guide others. That experience includes taking a felony for a vague and confusing law. During her brief incarceration, she earned the nickname Jail Google from fellow inmates. What's your headline today, Nicole? Ah, thank you, Susan, for the lovely introduction. Happy Friday Eve, or Thursday, as some people like to call it. But I've heard Thursday's the new Friday. At least in college it is. Bringing me to my headline today from Marijuana Moment. College students who use marijuana show signs of greater motivation compared to non-user study finds. Now, I just want to say from personal research, I guarantee that this is true. For myself, at the very least, um, I was at one point in my life uh, prescribed ADHD medication to which my father found to be completely deafening of all of my strengths and all of the things that he said made me shine. So my dad actually introduced to me at a fairly young age cannabis instead of utilizing ADHD medication, which allowed for me to continue my education and not have any problems when it came to studying at all, even at a very um, you know young age of 18 years old. 
Uh, and I know a lot of people say that there's a certain development of the brain that we have to get to, but I definitely would say that this is something that we need to look at because researchers are again challenging the idea that people who smoke marijuana lack motivation with a recent study suggesting the opposite might be true. The study published in the journal Exper Experimental and Clinical Pharmacology tested that stereotypes by recruiting 47 uh, college students, 25 frequent cannabis consumers, 22 non-users, and asking them to participate in a series of behavioral assessments known as effort, expenditure, and rewards task. Past studies on this issue have uh, divergent methodology that are not controlled for key co-founding variables, the researchers wrote. The new study sought after to adjust those variables and found the past month cannabis days and cannabis use disorder syndromes predicted the likelihood of selecting a high effort in the trial. In other words, frequent marijuana consumers were actually more likely than the control group to select tasks that had a significant higher level of motivation needed. The results provided preliminary evidence suggesting that the college students who use cannabis are more likely to expand effort to obtain reward, even after controlling the magnitude of the reward and the probability of the reward receipt, they wrote. Thus, these results do not support the affirmational syndrome of hypothesis, the hypothesis that cannabis will actually affect your motivation negatively. Contrary to the amotivational syndrome hypothesis, college students using more cannabis were more likely to select a high-effort choice option regardless of the reward magnitude, probability, and expected value of the overall reward. Although there was not significant difference between the cannabis use groups, there was a medium-sized effect lending uh, constant support for the association between cannabis use and greater effort choices. On a related note, a study published in 2019 found that people who use marijuana report consuming before exercising improves the experience and aids in their recovery, and those who do use cannabis elevate their workout tend to have a healthier amount of exercise. And I definitely will say that I think a lot of that has to do with the general overall health thought process of people who choose to use cannabis instead of using um, you know, other options as far as weight or, or um, exercise supplements or things like that, or even when we're talking about anti-anxiety medications or sleep medications, people who are trying to choose cannabis over these other pharmaceuticals, I think are in general trying to make healthier choices for their lives. Um, but the part about motivation, however, this is amazing. And I truly genuinely believe this to be true. Um, I get um, a lot of my motivation uh, from, you know, motivation. And I'm Nicole West reporting for the State of Cannabis News. Isn't Rico in charge of, Nicole. yeah, Rico's in charge of dad jokes. Stay in your lane, Nicole. <laughs> I can do a dad joke from time to time. Don't take that from me. Come on. <laughs> I guess because it's Thursday. It's all right. This is great news, everybody. Share this article. Yeah, I think the, the argument of people saying that cannabis makes people lazy is really uh, kind of time to put, put that argument to rest. I mean, we've had federal legalization in Canada for, for a number of years, and that has not harmed their workforce whatsoever. Up next is Rico Lamite. He likes to ask the tough questions that the mainstream media refuses to ask. The self-proclaimed dopest dad alive is here to encourage other dope dads. He is also the patriarch of dad jokes on the show. Find him on TEDx or at one of his Cannavision events, but always find him here every weekday as co-producer of the State of Cannabis News Hour. What's your headline today, Rico? All right, so mine's coming out of MG Retailer. What will cannabis trade so shows look like in the future? For those of y'all that haven't noticed, we're about two years into the pandemic. I'm sure trade shows, conferences, and all size events have begun to pop back up, but they're very different. Personally, my entire cannabis event business model was upended, and our head honcho, Susan Soares, can probably tell you the same as to one of the reasons 
uh, why the State of Cannabis News Hour was even created. Per MG Retailer, two years later, the most noticeable change so far is the rise of virtual events. Uh, March 2020, when national lockdowns hit, trade shows were among uh, the first casualties. 81% of event producers quickly shifted into virtual and hybrid events from Zoom webinars, keynote addresses, to elaborate conferences and digital exhibit halls. And we did what we had to do to stay alive and at least carry the flag forward for what we thought would be a rough couple of months. I held my first uh, major online B2B event March 19th, uh, 2020, and as a, as a result to the falling sky and just wanted some uh, cannabis industry leaders to get together and uh, tell us what it'd mean for the industry going forward. Um, and I admit, it was tough. Uh, Baby Zora was due April 8th, just weeks away, and me, the dope dad-to-be, was just floundering, just trying to find a way to move forward and put food on the table. But me and my team did a great job working through the new chaos, and we pulled it off. Our first virtual-only uh, event pulled in over 1,100 people, and the second was over 2,000. Uh, according to the Center of Exhi- uh, Exhibition Industry Re- Research, CEIR, only 12% of global events included virtual components in 2019, but by 2020, it was 88%. Tech wasn't exactly there. Streaming hiccups, lighting fails, broken cameras, you name it, it happened. Sponsor didn't like paying for unproven platforms, and exhibitors didn't really know yet how to generate sales, so estimating return on investment was impossible. Digital networking, which MG ranks the second most important reason uh, attendees give for attending trade shows in the first place place after uh, product prospecting, it left attendees dissatisfied and not not to mention the disappearance of swag bags and product sample guarantee, uh, guarantees. It just left folks uh, logging in and tapping out early. Zoom fatigue really did set in. But we made it and there's no going back. CEIR points out even though face-to-face events have resumed, 68% of trade show execs expect virtual components to become a larger part of in-person shows, with only 22% intending to abandon the virtual. Half claiming to maintain virtual elements said that they'd consider producing completely virtual shows, and 74% of those uh, plan to produce hybrid events combining education, promotional content, and digital networking with trait with traditional exhibits in the real world. The article includes some really interesting trade show veteran exec takes on how the uh, virtual hybrid event space can and will most likely look going forward. So if you're in the game, I'd highly recommend reading it in full. Uh, The most interesting part to me is the mostly untapped potential of VR and AR tech uh, that are now being added across the board. MG points out companies are already using VR and AR exhibits to demonstrate products and services in a safe, controlled way. Uh, Medical device manufacturers are giving professionals hands-on experience with new equipment in virtual hospital rooms as well. And um, at cannabis trade shows, extraction and cultivation equipment exhibitors could offer the same sort of test drives. Um, The most valuable upside and efficient methods of are, are the efficient methods of data collection with digital events. You can't really sneak on the platforms like you would in a, in a physical space. So you can see a lot more valuable attendee behavioral information in real time. And with the metaverse knocking at our doors, it's only going to get better. Uh, I, for one, am embracing the change and have nearly shifted all of my moves to digital personally. I'd love to hear from some of the other event producers on, on our team um, or out there in the audience. Like, have you fully embraced the digital spaces? Uh, what are some of the pros and cons of building your cannabis events in the real world? This is Rico Lamit, the dopest dad in the street, reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. I'm a COVID-19 event produce, producing survivor. Thanks for sharing this article, Rico. Uh, I actually thought it was pretty interesting. And, you know, as much as I love the intersection of virtual and digital spaces with the actual human interactions, 
Um, I think that as an event producer, it, it presents a real challenge of where you're going to allocate your resources because to build these virtual uh, communities and spaces is not necessarily cheap unless you have a certain type of individual on your team or a certain skill set. And in my experience thus far, the activity in the virtual and digital spaces at these events is minimal when there's also a physical component. And so as an attendee or an exhibitor, you are having to make choices that have opportunity cost and the payoff isn't yet there in the digital and virtual space. And the more you encourage the activity there, the less the activity is in the real world and people are paying a premium for that real world interaction. So it's a bit of a conundrum for event producers. Hey, Rico, I want to add, too, that I'm also a COVID event uh, producer survivor. And my props, you know, props to everybody who just went for it, because I think a lot of us felt we just had to do something. We couldn't, you know, sit sit in our, our flabs and not do anything. So, um, yeah, it, it was a big learning experience. Some things went way off the rails. Other things really happened, and we'll integrate that into a live event. Not the same, of course, but... I think it's just something we have to, you know, navigate these situations. And we're going to use some of these assets like streaming could, could also be, you know, you could stream a live event to other locations where people couldn't normally attend. So I think there's a win there somewhere. Right on. You know, I went to one of these virtual events um, right when COVID was kind of in its in the full swing and it just seemed so hokey. It was one of these events where like you made your own avatar and you could walk around and, um, like actually approach other people that were live in the the space and like talk to them and whatnot. And again, it just, it, it felt so hokey that I, I only stayed for maybe five minutes. The, the, the biggest part of events as a couple people have kind of touched on is that personal interaction. And, um, especially in this, in this space where so many of the, the key, elements, the key people come from so many different backgrounds and are so spread out across the country or across the world to have these events where we can actually come together and meet and share our, 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 our stories and, um, really help motivate each other to, to come out with new products is, is so needed. I agree with you, Nick. It hokey is the word I would use. Let's do the hokey pokey at those lame events. I think that's going to change, though, as the metaverse in general evolves. And I think that, you know, in a real way, not trying to, you know, make us all feel old, but eventually this is going to be the way of the 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 future and we have to in some ways understand that there ha- there is going to be both in the very near future um, the the generation that exists right now that is coming into the cannabis industry very quickly um, this is a reality for them in how they do normal fucking interactions so I I see this being something that actually does take place uh, for the indefinite foreseeable future and like the metaverse a year ago wasn't even where it is now I still think it's fucking insane too because I think I'm too old for the concept. But we are going to be outdated in this thought very soon. But how, yeah. do, you, how do you pass the duchy in the metaverse? Nicole? Well, if there's odorless cannabis, then maybe it doesn't matter. Virtual yeah. events are lame as fuck, period. Jason, I struggle to use the computer. Jason, come on. Like, you, it's okay. Like, not everyone is, is techie and not everyone's going to exist there. But the new generation, it's going to be a thing. And when we're starting to talk about how we are going to properly market ourselves and get this new generation that's coming into the cannabis industry to participate, um, we got to make sure that we're still, we're meeting that audience as well. Don't, don't forget that, guys. We, we, we have I, to need them to participate by buying weed and smoking. All right. 
I I hear you, Nicole, but I also think that one thing we're ignoring is almost every state has laws that restrict what you can do if it appeals to children and youth. And all of this virtual and digital stuff is highly appealing to children. And so people really need to but, be cautious in what they're, they're doing. But they're becoming adults, Brandon. And that's what I'm saying. Very quickly, that's not children's stuff anymore. This is now adult stuff. And it's becoming adult stuff. Adults are running the metaverse in a big way. Like, this is not... Uh, highly children focused the metaverse like the video game world potentially yes but like this specific thing there's like 21 and over portions of the metaverse save the children you know and real quick real quick on this i (laughs) i included product sales in my event through working with a distributor a licensed distributor so there is a way we had a special box that was delivered so there was a way to integrate real product all right. Well, everyone. You deliver boxes, Eric? <laughs> yeah, they're right? gift box. They were little, um, you know, like uh, subscription boxes. <laughs> yeah. Everyone's still buying boxes one way or another. Um, all right. And up next, we have Gretchen Gailey. Gretchen's a Washington insider and the founder of Panoptic Strategies. What do you have for us today, Gretchen? Good afternoon, Nicole. Since Washington is doing absolutely nothing, as always, I decided to look outside of the Beltway, wait for my trucker convoy to show up. The New York Post has a headline, U.S. cannabis market soared in 2021, but was dragged down by New York. The U.S. cannabis industry added more than 100,000 jobs last year, and the economic lift will only continue if states like New York get recreational programs off the ground, according to experts. Americans spend nearly $25 billion on cannabis products in 2021 as the budding industry expanded by about 33%, adding more than 107,000 new jobs, according to a report from cannabis news site Leafly and Whitney Economics. Some 428,000 Americans now work directly in the cultivation and retail sectors of the industry or have ancillary jobs with licensed distributors in fields like accounting, construction, and regulatory compliance. Revenue and jobs could soon quadruple if cannabis is legalized federally and more adult use programs get off the ground from coast to coast. Americans over 21 can now walk into stores and buy joints, flowers, and edibles in 11 states in Washington, D.C. Medical marijuana is legal in 38 states where illegal dealers still reign supreme, according to Bruce Barcott, senior editor at Leafly. The prevalence of the illegal cannabis trade was especially acute in New York where cannabis is legal, but its regulated sale was still a pipe dream for many. You've got a huge population if you're going to grow jobs and move people from the illicit market over to the regulated market. Those customers have to be able to actually buy licensed and regulated products at a store near them. Barcott said the disparate nature of New York's medical program, where 40 dispensaries serve nearly 20 million people, was, quote, dysfunctional and the worst in the country. Only 2,300 New Yorkers had full-time cannabis jobs, according to the study. We should be talking about 25,000 to 30,000 cannabis jobs. We should be talking about 1.5 billion, with a B, dollars in cannabis sales. I think the current governor realizes what an economic benefit this industry will bring to New York. Referencing Governor Kathy Hochul's stated commitment to sparking the program by 2023. California and Colorado remain the national leaders of the industry, while Massachusetts, Illinois, Michigan, and Arizona added jobs at double-digit rates. Marijuana is still illegal on the federal level by the government as Schedule I substance alongside far more dangerous substances such as heroin, MDMA, 
and LSD and above potentially deadly Schedule II narcotics like fentanyl, methamphetamine, and cocaine. The Republican-backed bill in Congress would legalize the plant on the federal level for adults over 21 and allow individual states to determine if they should prohibit it. I love seeing jobs. I think that job numbers are always good things to share with lawmakers, especially on your conservative side. Everyone loves to see jobs that are created and for people to understand what this industry truly could be. I hope New York and Governor Hochul uh, gets New York on the right path. We shall see. I think it's going to take her quite a while, but there could be hope here on the East Coast if New York can get its head out of its ass. Let's scratch them for a state of camps these are. Well, Dr. Bong, did you want to weigh in? I just wanted to say thank you guys for allowing New York to get some burn. And you're absolutely right, because if we don't get it right, it's going to be screwed up on so many different levels. Susan, Rico, Nicole, you guys are definitely my inspiration. And I appreciate you guys every day. I swear to you, I've set my clock to the show. So just keep up the good work. We're going to we're going to figure it out. We're everybody. We're all just a, a work in progress. It's Dr. Bong in the Bronx. Please. New York is going to fuck their whole program up. They've already got off on the wrong foot. I am, I I am truly those concerned. Are shots fired. I am truly concerned that New York is not going to get things right. And I think the federal government is going to look to New York's program greatly, especially if Chuck Schumer is at the helm. So New York, it's I think it's essential for them to get things done right so a federal program can happen. If New York fucks it up, it's going to set back federal legalization. If we fuck it up, everybody's screwed. New York already has fucked it up because they have zero enforcement and they have a thriving trap market and that's going to take all the market share from the retail market once it finally goes online. But you can smoke weed in any place that you can smoke. That is the greatest fucking thing. I agree with you 100%. I'm a big fan of that portion. That's huge. And that's, I think, essential. New New York's recent proposal about rolling the hemp farmers over into cannabis farmers, not all of those people really know how to grow good cannabis that gets you high i'm about to cover all of that brandon i think brandon just gave us a wonderful uh segue into mr jason beck i think he just might have see the cannabis industry's longest continuously running retailer and some of his favorite things include mink coats private jets triggering the libs smoking the world's best weed and identifying booth up next is jason beck what you got for us my man Oh, yeah, Rico. Good morning and happy Thursday, everybody. Today, my story comes out of New York, where New York hemp farmers will be able to grow marijuana under a provisional bill signed by none other than Governor Ho Chill. New York Governor Kathy Hochul signed legislation Monday that will allow state licensed hemp growers to apply for provisional licenses to begin cultivating adult use cannabis. The legislation created a conditional adult use cannabis cultivator license and existing hemp growers that receive one would be able to cultivate up to an acre of cannabis or 25,000 square feet greenhouse with no more than 20 lights. The twenty or the two-year license will also allow the growers to distribute cannabis until June first of twenty twenty-three. Zach Sar- Sarkis, founder of New York Hemp Lab and Flower City Collective, who grows hemp and CBD bud at Growing Family Farms, which sounds to me like total fucking boof, sees the license as a major opportunity. Sarkis said Monday 
that he plans to apply for a provisional license and begin growing. In a quote, he says, we've been working pretty tirelessly to dial in our process and quality control to make sure that we're bringing the highest quality cannabis products to the market. And that's just CBD, Sarkis said. So really, we have all the infrastructure and everything we need to be able to play in the full spectrum of cannabis. License holders will be required to participate in a social equity program under which they train minorities and women who want to enter the cannabis industry. And Governor Hochul, in a statement, said that the provisional licenses would give small growers a leg up in the industry as adult use dispensaries open through that milestone. through open and through that milestone is is still a ways away. I am proud to sign this bill, which positions New York farmers to be on the first to grow cannabis and jumpstart the safe, equitable and inclusive new industry we are building, Hochul said. New York State will continue to lead the way in delivering on our commitment to bring economic opportunity and growth to every New Yorker in every corner of our great state, Governor Hochul says. Well, guess this is what I have to say about this, Governor Hochul. I think it's great that you did that. I think more access is always great. But you put the licenses in the wrong hands. Hemp, for, hemp, hemp farmers grow boof, and they are not skilled to grow actual craft cannabis that's designed to be medicine for patients. And not to mention, too, New York. Last time I checked, New York doesn't even allow flower sales in dispensary shelves. So where in the hell is this weed going to really go? It sounds like it's going to a local food cart near you on 54th and Maine. And this is Jason Beck reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. I love the photo on this article. I know that it's partially harvested, but the, that plant looks horrible in the dude's face. He's just like so concerned. I, I totally agree with you, Jason. I, I think they're putting the cart way before uh, the horse. Flower and ground flower available in New York. So... I, I don't I don't understand at all why they're allowing people to start doing these these licenses if there's no pathway to sell it. I don't know what the hell they're thinking. Um, and frankly, yeah, like it just shows a complete lack of understanding if they think you can grow hemp, that you can grow cannabis, adult use cannabis. Um, while that might be true, I think you guys are missing the opportunity here. And if California had done something like this, all of the small growers wouldn't have been hurting so bad. So let me tell you really quick what we've been working on. I'm working with a hemp farmer right now in New York, and we're working to flip his license right now. And what this does, it gives these small farmers the leg up to start building out, setting up, and cultivating, anticipating uh, sales at the beginning of the year next year. And they're going to be able to be vertical unlike anybody else. Okay, so nobody else is allowed to be vertical in the state. The hemp farmers are allowed to be vertical for up to two years. It gives them a great leg up. It gives the small farmers a great leg up to get their act together because they're really only going up against eight MSOs right now. The annual licenses haven't come out yet. The, and, and New York has been really fast. I mean, what New York is doing is kind of crazy as they're passing laws before they have full regulation built, but they're working on it. And this is an amazing opportunity. This yeah. is going to, and not all those hemp farmers are going to be able to get the annual license. That's the, that's the key. I mean, that's the sad part is the rug will be ripped out from underneath them. Okay. Hey, okay. How many of these farmers are really capable of growing crazy. some fire fucking weed? You know okay. what, Jason, I think you're going to be really surprised 
And New York's going to do a better job than California did 100% if they keep going down those steps. <laughs> now, that, now that is priceless, Kay. That is totally priceless. Okay. Yeah. And New York's going to be you. just as big of a shit show as California. It already is a big shit show. And that, thanks so much to Governor this, Ho Chill. This was a big win for small producers off the bat. And you have to realize that, that the, I'm sorry, just real quick. Where does you, it say they that they the get right to be crop, vertically integrated? They are allowed to cultivate. It does say that. You've got to read the bill. Where? The, the, the small farm farmers are allowed to grow process and distribute and up until next year. It, gets, it makes them vertical. Before anybody else, sell to the consumer. No, it means That's sell to the. It sells. It means sells to the. They get to be distro. They get to be distro to the to the stores that are going to open up really. And, and if, if MSR retailers won't yeah. buy it, and then they'll go well, out of business. Exactly. MSOs are not going to buy this shit. They're going to buy their own weed. They're not going to buy this shit. They're going to fucking close down the market like they always it's do. It's, it's, it's not going to be everywhere, but we'll get and, into and the And the trap will you'll thrive. See. You'll see. We'll Traps will trap. thrive. I told you. Traps I got a food thriving. truck on 54th Traps and Main Street. everywhere when you can't bring the prices down. And these guys are going to – it's a big win for small growers. It's a big win. If they had done this in California – Half the humble wouldn't be crying. This right is now. this is not a, a big win for small growers. I totally disagree with that, Kay. But I still love you. I like to see I a mean, battle royale between humble and Albany. Oh, he said time will tell. Albany. You give me a private jet, and I'll be out there, Kay. You guys, we're we're way over time, and I think we need to get a room. Thank you, Kay, and thank you for Doctor Doctor Bong. Let's keep smoking the news. I think it's time for the relight. Oh, shit. You are correct. Let's relight. You are tuned in to the State of Cannabis News Hour, your daily dose. The thoughts and opinions expressed in the State of Cannabis News Hour are those of the individual speakers, not those of any other speaker, the State of Cannabis, or its members. The statements made in the State of Cannabis News Hour do not constitute legal or accounting advice, and the State of Cannabis and its speakers make no representation regarding the legal status of any substance in any country, area, or territory, or any other authorities. The views expressed in this room do not establish any fiduciary relationships. The sponsorship of the State of Cannabis News Hour do not imply or constitute any endorsement by the State of Cannabis or the expressions of any of the opinions whatsoever on the part of the State of Cannabis or any of its speakers. Viewer discretion advised. Um, I'm going to pass my time on uh, so that we can get everyone in. So let's uh, introduce Brandon. Um, I, I think actually, oh, yep, Brandon Dorsky. Uh, Brandon Dorsky is the CEO at Fruit Slabs, and he's also an intellectual property attorney here in California. What do you have for us today, Brandon? Thanks for having me. Uh, my attorney comes from Law 360, my article comes from Law 360. It's Pot Attorneys Organization Enters ABA Debate on Money Laundering Rules, as reported by Sam Reisman. And lawyers advising New York hemp farmers switching over to real cannabis may really want to pay attention here. The International Cannabis Bar Association, or INCBA, warned the American Bar Association, the ABA, against adopting a proposed change to ethical guidelines concerning lawyers' responsibilities in connection with combating money laundering last week. A proposed rule change by the ABA to the model rules of professional conduct would expand attorneys' due diligence obligations to take additional efforts to verify the legality of a client's activities and require attorneys' withdrawal if the attorney becomes aware of unlawful money laundering. The language, if adopted, could impact attorneys' ability to advise state legal cannabis businesses without, with, while creating additional risks to their license to practice law. INCBA published a statement that said, quote, 
We fear that the unattended consequences of the proposed comments will force states that have implemented adult use and medical cannabis regulatory regimes to decline to adopt this guidance as it discourages or denies legal services to those in the state legal adult and medical cannabis industry. Inqua's position is that the ABA's proposed language does not consider emergent industries that sometimes operate in a gray area, like state cannabis marketplaces or cryptocurrency transactions, non-fungible tokens, and other gray area activity. Inqua holds that, quote, the proposed language prohibits lawyers from representing cannabis industry market participants and could even create barriers for attorneys who represent state and local governments that license operators or that accept fees or tax payments from those operators. The proposed rule changes come are motivated by the 2016 Panama Papers leak. But Inqua has warned that adopting these proposed rule changes would create a conundrum for state bars that will either have to reject the rules or accept it in whole with specific caveats. Inqua believes any outcome would make it very difficult for attorneys to take on cannabis clients and create inconsistencies with state ethical standards and the ABA's overall guidelines. Inqua's memo went on to urge committees to adopt sensible proposals that are narrowly tailored to achieve the goals of anti-money laundering compliance and the Bank Secrecy Act without creating additional obstacles for lawyers to represent the very clients that are most in need of legal guidance, specifically state legal cannabis operating businesses. Uh, I am going to pay very close attention to this, and in particular because Lara DeCaro, who's on our team, is one of the founders of Inkba, and this is something that we are all passionately vested in because we want to represent our clients in the cannabis industry, and if these rules are adopted, we become ethically compromised to give the very people that need our advice the most uh, the ability to give them that advice. We could lose our licenses to practice law. And that creates a very serious problem for state cannabis operators and the attorneys who represent them. This is Brandon Dorsky reporting for the State of Cannabis News. Thanks, Brandon. That was that was awesome. Such a good synopsis of kind of what we're fighting here. It's a really, really important issue that our clients have access to good lawyers uh, and those lawyers don't fear for their ability to represent. It's one of the things that has kept the communities marginalized, not being able to have access to good quality legal representation and interpretation of what they are allowed to do under state law. And it, it's no joke. There have been plenty of states who have come out and said that attorneys practicing in this field are going to lose their license to practice law. So, you know, a model rule like this out of the ABA, which is the American Bar Association for those um, at home, um, would could really, really chill the experience. You know, the, the author of the article, you know, got the quote a little bit wrong. I think the, the organization's primary concern is, is the chilling effect on our ability to do our job and do our job well without fear of losing our license. And you just nailed it. You totally capitalized on on that component of it. So thank you for, for such a great um, representation of that article, Brandon. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. I appreciate it as well, Laura. I really do. Speaking of Laura, this badass cannabis mom is the co-founder of the International Cannabis Bar Association. She's the current chair of the Bar Association of San Francisco Cannabis Law Section, founder of San Francisco Equity Applicant Pro Bono Legal Project, and the organic source of the silkiest, smoothest vocal cords south of the Canadian border. Why don't you come back up to the stage, Lara? What you got for us? Oh, that south of the Canadian border. That's awesome. It's a lot of territory. Um, well, yeah, and um, 
I, I just want to um, also reiterate that, you know, it's such a, an honor to be part of the NCBA and um, the organization and see what it's done um, and that hopefully the change it will make. Um, but my article is about, um, in my somewhat new and now hopefully everlasting quest to find the obscure stories of cannabis policies making news in unlikely places, uh, my story is out of the Isle of Man. It's a self-governing British crown dependency with a population of just over 85,000 uh, 85, <laughs> 85, people in the IRC, somewhere between England and Ireland, in case you don't know. <laughs> but the article is Medical Cannabis on the Isle of Man, Minister Welcomes Sector Growth. It's from the BBC. Apparently, developer PLNRD, which uh, calls itself a leading regeneration and clean energy specialist, has uh, issued a proposal for a one million pound production complex in Braddon. Probably slaughtered that word, knowing that it's from the Isle of Man, which could be "quote unquote" game changing. This is um, roughly converted into one point three million dollars U.S. Their proposal website touts this project as, quote, a purpose-built R&D center in the pharmaceutical sector that will lead this emerging industry on the Isle of Man. Who knows? It's the first major scheme to have been put forward since licenses were made available there in June of 2021. Alex Allenson, a member of the local parliament, whom I actually had to look up because this article admittedly presumes you know a lot of details that you don't know, <laughs> is quoted as saying, um, you know, any application to grow a medical cannabis industry would benefit the island's residents. Um, and he's very interested in this scheme. I just thought it was really interesting, um, and I won't go into a lot of detail. The article itself is really short, but um, the government there had unanimously backed the cannabis production rules back in January 2021, and um, I looked that up. But the, art, the, the laws there permit a licensed person to grow and to produce and to export cannabis-based products, uh, but using the drug on the island would still remain illegal under their rules. Their licenses cost about um, $300 to $60,000, depending on type. So I thought I wanted to ask Jason how he felt about a licensing scheme where you can't use your product. This is Laura DeCaro reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. Well, I mean, that, that kind of scheme we currently already currently have existing in California where you can't even smoke in a goddamn dispensary anymore. So <laughs> it kind of feels the same fucking way. That's a good point. Okay, I'll take that. But you can. <laughs> Is there also an Isle of Woe Man? There, That's that, what I was thinking. Just a footnote, Isle of Man is very famous for money laundering. It is a, uh, it's a place where a lot of folks hide at and hang out and uh, play with their money in an interesting Full way. circle. <laughs> yeah, they Man. have no... Full, have so, no full circle jerk. Yeah, right. They have no desire to participate in this, aside from on an economic basis. That's it. They want you to send your project there so they can launder your money. If money is also dirty, shouldn't it all be laundered? Okay, we've got Rob <laughs> Go Lightly up from the audience. Rob, did you want to weigh in on Laura's headline? Well, I just wanted to get up here to uh, tell Jason Beck that uh, social consumption is happening up in San Francisco. Uh, Barbary Coast and their other dispensaries started consumption lounges just a couple days ago. So uh, freedom's coming back. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yep. 
It's here. It's here. It's definitely here. But I think Jason makes a really good point that on a broader basis, in large swaths of California, we don't see that progressive attitude happening. And you still have created a scheme where the only place that people can consume is in their home or that they own. You know, it's, it's really sad because cannabis dispensaries were created out of a necessity to allow not only just access, but also uh, places to consume. And that was the whole uh, premise around uh, Prop 215 is allowing people to have safe access and a safe place to consume. And that's been totally stripped out in Prop 64 and it needs to come yeah. the fuck back. That used to be the way we did it here years ago. Yeah. Well, the good old days. Oh, <laughs> the good old days. Exactly. Um, well, thank you so much for that headline, Laura. Um, and we'll go ahead and get to our next correspondent. Ms. Priscilla Agoncillo voted as one of the top 25 women in cannabis making history and the CEO of the award-winning Original Breeders League. What do you have for us today, Priscilla? Uh, my article is uh, legal weed sales could start in New Jersey within weeks, Murphy says. After missing a self-imposed Tuesday deadline to open the state for legal cannabis sales, Governor Phil Murphy said Wednesday night, New Jersey is within weeks of having existing medical cannabis dispensaries sell recreational to adults 21 and older. Uh, the New Jersey Cannabis Regulatory Commission, which is in charge of regulating the new industry, is still reviewing applications for licenses. The panel missed a self-imposed uh, self February 22nd deadline to open the state for adult-use cannabis. Jeff Brown, the commission's executive director, said a number of factors are still in the way before doors can open, including a lack of municipal buy-in. Local officials must attest in writing that they support the alternative treatment centers, the growers and sellers of medical cannabis in their communities. They have to have permission to sell product for adult use. There are 23 retail locations selling cannabis to the state's more than 120,000 registered patients. Several medical, several medical cannabis providers have openly complained that the state is taking too long to approve their request to serve the legal market. These same players have threatened to lay off employees and destroy product if the adult market doesn't open up for them soon. State regulation requires a commission to vote at a public meeting to approve applications to sell recreational cannabis. I think the next one is on um, in March on the 24th. So if you want to get involved, that's when to get involved. Murphy said if he had to predict they are within weeks, uh, he hopes in March that everyone will see implicit movement on the medical dispensaries, some of them being able to sell recreational cannabis. This is Priscilla reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. Thank you so much for that headline, Priscilla. Um, it sounds like the stage is having a little bit of issues with hearing everyone. So I know that there might be a, a little bit of lightness on the comments on this. So I just wanted to jump in really quick. I have one comment on this. I just want to make sure that everyone in New York knows that don't worry, New Jersey is going to fuck up just like New York. So don't worry, you guys are all going to be fucked. <laughs> That's from Jason, magical uh, future ball, future telling ball. He's so positive. <laughs> Everyone, join cannabis. Listen to Jason Beck. You're going to fuck it up like everybody else did. I, I'm just a realist, just letting you know what's happening. He's not wrong. He's not wrong. Yeah, I apologize for that. I don't know. I know some people heard the entire story and others didn't. Please check out the link for um, more info. But uh, Jersey is hopefully setting up for sales in, in uh, uh, the very near future in the next few weeks, according to the governor there. Um, that was that was hopefully, right, Priscilla? Hopefully. Hopefully, yeah. We'll see. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Don't bet the house on it. He said March. The governor said March. 
Well, I, I think it's fantastic. I think anytime we have additional access, even if it's boof, in local communities, we're winning. We're winning. So I think but it's they great. can't. People can't do home grows in New Jersey, right? You saying they won't? They can't. <laughs> Not supposed to. I mean, the only people in New Jersey that even have a backyard live in West Orange. <laughs> what? I'm just saying, there's nowhere to grow. There's nowhere for people to home grow in New Jersey. It's a fucking stacked, fucking stacked, fucking place. I thought it was the Garden State. Well, it's plenty of compost. I, yeah, exactly. It's I, I consider it the um, sanitation state. Let's keep smoking the news. Also, catch the podcast if you missed any of uh, Priscilla's headline. Subject: He is a cannabis-loving Fresno-based protector of freedom and former raptivist representing the BIPOC conservative point of view, all too often left out of the mainstream news here to change the narrative. Up next is the governor himself, Nicholas Wildstar. What you got for us this morning, my man? Thank you. Thank you, Rico. And hello to you, State of Cannabis crew. Canada has been in the news lately for many reasons, but now we can add cannabis to the list. My story today is coming straight from Forbes, which says that according to a Deloitte Canada report, since Canada legalized recreational cannabis in 2018, the industry has contributed $43.5 billion, with a B, billion to Canada's national GDP. The industry has generated $11 billion in sales nationwide and made $29 billion in capital expenditure. Furthermore, the adult use recreational cannabis industry has created 98,000 jobs and put $15.1 billion into the government's pockets by way of taxation. The report shows that the industry adds a little over a dollar to Canada's GDP for every dollar for revenue and capital expenditure. The cannabis sector sustains around four jobs for every million dollars in revenue. However, Not much has changed about diversity within the industry. Before legalization, almost all federally licensed cannabis producers were managed by white men. Deloitte surveyed 700 directors and executives for more than 200 firms. The findings showed that 72% were white men, 14% men uh, were men belonging to minority groups, 12% were white women, and 2% were women belonging to minority groups, including South Asian, East Asian, Indigenous, Arab, Hispanic, and Black individuals. Such findings are in line with the 2020 study conducted by the University of Toronto and the Center on Drug Policy Evaluation, which found that cannabis industry leaders are primarily 84% white and 86% men, despite the fact that minority groups have been disproportionately negatively impacted by cannabis prohibition in Canada, the United States, and elsewhere. Hmm, where have we heard that before? Anyway, Deloitte's analysis shows that there is all, uh, that there are still opportunities for the Canadian cannabis industry to make a more significant social contribution and addresses considerable environmental footprint. Overall, the report concludes that excuse me, that from an economic perspective, it seems clear uh, the cannabis industry has been a great success with more to come as it continues to grow, literally and figuratively. Reporting with the State of Cannabis News Hour, this is Nick Wildstar, a.k.a. The Governor. Speak now or forever hold your peace. I mean, it just goes to show you how much boof weed can be sold. If you had a federally legalized marketplace, that's the only thing that's going to save Humboldt and the whole Trinity Triangle. 
Descheduler bust. What kind of uptick do y'all think um, we'd have in our own national GDP should federal legalization occur? Did you say we'd have, Rico? Have weed? Jason? He did He did say that. And also in Canada, their, their uh, packaging and labeling uh, is really fucked up, right? I mean, it's opaque. As far as a brand, you can't even do any branding, right? Yeah, it's very fucked up. It's opaque packaging. So you can't really build any kind of uh, brand resonance anywhere. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I was talking to one of my clients about that the other day. Um, you know, they're worried about a new bill that was uh, introduced here in California with regard to some packaging and labeling of beverages that will impede their ability to sell. And they pointed to Canada, you know, as a reason why it doesn't sell well up there. Um, but you know, what really struck me about your article, Nick, was the, um, the numbers of, uh, you know, different minorities and the breakdown there, the disparate participation, um, for, for various, uh, minorities that were identified by this. Does Canada allow cigarettes to still have color on their packaging? Like probably, I feel like that's kind of ridiculous. All right. Well, we are at time on that headline. So thank you so much, Governor, for that um, information in regards to the GDP uh, in Canada. So super interesting, willing to follow. Um, Eric Hislereda is up next. He's an award-winning journalist and brand-building content ninja, freedom-fighting farmer's friend. And, you know, he's just a friend of ours. What do you have for us today, Eric? Hi, Nicole. Thank you for the intro, everybody. Great to be here today. My headline is from the Cannabit blog, and it's in a fragmented product landscape, consumer understanding is critical. So not the sexiest title, but this article is a pretty cool snapshot of where product preferences are here in California. And as the world's most developed cannabis marketplace, it should prove insightful, not just for folks here, but for operators in other regions too. It opens like this. With over 100,000 unique product SKUs now on sale in California, cannabis consumers face an increasingly dizzying array of options to choose from in a hyper-fragmented market. With so many existing choices available as new entrants jockey for competitive positions, brands must vie for shares of minds and wallets. New Frontier Data's analysis of recent data from California shows just how competitive the state's cannabis product landscape has become. Flower products, including pre-rolls, represent the largest category in the market, accounting for nearly half, 46%, of all sales and nearly $2.2 billion in revenue during 2021. The sector is crowded, however, featuring beyond 850 unique flower brands and more than 600 pre-roll labels currently sold without any single brand commanding more than 3% of the market. The top 10 brands combined account for 22% of the category. Despite that fragmentation, given the significant degree of consumer spending on flower, even a small share of the multi-billion dollar category uh, stands to be highly lucrative. At the other end of the spectrum sit topicals, a smaller, far more concentrated category with a few large players vying for the lion's shares of the category. Topicals accounted for less than $30 million, below 1% of the market in 2021. Competing with only about 60 topical brands, sales of California's top two leaders commanded more than half the category share, and the top 10 topical brands comprise 87% of the category, illustrating their domination of that segment. The higher concentration of share among value-added categories is due to several factors. Unlike highly substitutable flower products, 
For example, similar strains grown by different growers, value-added products offer greater, greater abilities for differentiation based on ingredients uh, form fa- and form factors. Additionally, most consumers transitioning from illicit to legal markets are well-oriented to flower and concentrate products, but generally less experienced with high-quality edibles, beverages, vapes, and topicals due to difficulties in producing them at scale for an illicit market. Thus, consumers' limited experiences with value-added products afford brands the ability to establish a strong affinity with those coming to them without well-established expectations. Furthermore, consumers new to legalized cannabis, especially those without previous experience smoking cannabis, are likelier to choose non-combustible products and to become brand loyal upon finding a product to meet their needs. So one of the more interesting stats here is that 47% of total sales in cannabis are amassed by the top 10 brands in each category. I thought I'd share a few of those in no particular order. For flower, it's Alien Labs, Connected, and Wonderbret, Edibles, Kiva, Kana, and Emerald Sky, and for topicals, Papa Barkley, Ohm, and Mary's Medicinals. And that's what I've got for today. I'm Eric for the State of Cannabis News Hour. Thank you for having me up. Nice, Eric, covering indoor brands this day. Yeah, man, I talked about all you guys. No worries. Love it all. Well, kind of. I think we're definitely going to see right. a in real time starting to happen the way that the food industry exists. About 85% of food, mainstream food that we eat come from five major corporations that own all of those. And I think we're going to start seeing that kind of consolidation in cannabis in general. I think food is a really good parallel to kind of look at because it is it is uh, multidimensional. Cannabis isn't just one thing. Yeah, I think you're, I think you're um, right, I just, Nicole, but also kind of like spirits and, and wine and beer. I think that there's a craft segment that's going to really carve out and I think like our growers in NorCal, they're going to be around. They're, the quality is just too high, and they're going to find a way. And maybe they'll be acquired well, by the I'm, big guys, but they're not absolutely. going to Absolutely. Not if MSOs have anything to do with take, it. Farmers market, Anheuser-Busch did not take out the craft brewers. Farmers they bought market, them. MSOs will, though. No, they won't. No, that's not that's not true, Jason. The, the market's going to have about 15% availability for the craft industry in general. The same thing exists in food. You you know, 15 are willing to spend that extra money to know where their fucking turkey was grown you know and that's going to be the continuation cannabis is going to parallel in a big way the craft uh food or the the craft spirits and and uh alcohols as well as food like it, it is a parallel of both of those and you look at those 85 percent of the market exists with three major ma- manufacturers and alcohol 15 percent of it belongs to the small batch brewers 85 percent of the grocer market belongs to a few main manufacturers 15 percent of it belongs to the farmer's market and the people that are willing to spend that extra money it's going to end up the same way msos aren't going to be able to smash out completely they will ultimately be the opportunity for there to be buyouts like fat tire uh was with coors fat tire was a small fucking company that run itself and they were doing great and eventually coors bought it i mean at the end of the day that's Love you, nicole we gotta wrap it <laughs> yes indeed msos don't give a fuck about this small farmer no no hey, oh, yeah, guys on to the on to the last correspondent we have to go with this one uh, some call her nanograms the visionary leader of our scrappy unrefined news team she's the highly connected founder of justforcare.org the state of cannabis events and news hour an inspiration to us all and a thorn in jimmy fallon's side bringing us home today like a good grandma <laughs> should the author of children's book what's going in the grandma's garden susan Sores. what you got for us bring us home Fuck Jimmy Fallon. 
My headline t- today comes from CBS Baltimore, and it reads, Maryland woman earns degree in medical cannabis after treatment dramatically helped her autistic son by Denise Koch. Michelle Wright saw her autistic son, who was in his early 20s, rapidly declining. He was taking doctor-prescribed anti-seizure, antidepressant, and antipsychotic drugs, which he took multiple times a day. By the time he was 25, he was on 15 medications and almost catatonic. His mom, Michelle, said he was becoming more self-injurious. He would harm himself. He would bang his head until he bled. We had to buy helmets, sitting in a corner all day, crying, screaming, banging their head, unable to communicate with you, unable to be touched. In 2014, Maryland legalized medical cannabis. Desperate to help her son, Michelle began researching its benefits and ultimately discovered the particular plants that contained the chemicals that helped her son. Today, she carefully grinds, selects, and heats the plant and then puts it in pill form, and Ian takes it four times a day. He would not be here without it, Michelle said. I do not believe he would be here without it. He was that ill. Cannabis and one antipsychotic once a day, that's all Ian takes now. She said that it changed his family's life. His transformation prompted Michelle to apply for the first uh, program, and after two years of study, she graduated along with 129 other students. Students. Michelle said that whatever challenges her son, he is operating at a better level than he ever has. He's gained back 20 pounds. He doesn't have to wear a helmet, and he can communicate with me. He will let me hold his hand, and we are at time. Uh, that was a really great show. Thank you so much to all of the correspondents that uh, go through the headlines every day and just bring us what we need to know. A big thank you to Nicole and Rico for co-producing the show, and thank you, audience, for being in our eyes and ears when there's news in your city, county, state, or country. Your addition to our show makes the State of Cannabis News Hour news you can trust. You've been tuned in to the State of Cannabis News Hour, where we collectively move policy forward in an inclusive and sustainable way. Start your morning on a high note and join us every weekday at 9 a.m. Pacific time for the State of Cannabis News Hour, your daily dose. Say goodbye, Rico. Goodbye, Mexico.